for Psalm number 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet have almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. Have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you roused yourself, you despised them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. For you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish and put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. Father, would you speak to us till your church is built and until the earth is filled with your glory? Would you make us what we are not this morning? Would you correct that which is wrong in us? Would you encourage that which is good in us? Would you help us, Father, to love you more? Make us more and more like Christ this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, the Psalm 73 that we're looking at this morning raises a question for us. Is it good to be a Christian? Does Christianity work? 
What do I gain from following Jesus? And it might seem like a, a question to which someone who believes in God will give a fairly obvious and straightforward answer. But for me and for those that believe in God, it's not always that easy. Some of us here this morning will look back on 2017 as an awful year. That's a very popular thing to do right now. Others will say that it wasn't so bad. And the rest of us will fall in shades in between. But what's certain is that all of us who follow God here this morning and across the world will have felt the sting of suffering as God's people in various different ways and will expect to face the same in the year to come. Perhaps we've faced the death of loved ones. Perhaps we've struggled financially or with family. Others of us will have faced severe illness or job insecurities. And throughout it all, we could be tempted to ask, why do these things happen to me as someone who trusts in a good God? It's particularly hard to follow him, I feel, when so many in our country live as if God doesn't exist. And many of their lives seem much easier than mine. As I look ahead to 2017, is it worth my while taking God into account? Is it good to be a Christian? Well, one man who certainly grapples with this issue is the author of our psalm this morning, Asaph. Asaph is a very talented singer and songwriter for God's people, the sort of person you would never assume questions the goodness of God. Not a man of his standing. Surely not Asaph. But no believer is immune from doubt. And Asaph is facing a real crisis. And that's a really important thing to notice before we look at the nuts and bolts of Psalm 73. Asaph does not write this in a vacuum. This isn't a stimulating late night discussion with some friends over a glass of whiskey. You feel his pain throughout the psalm. This is an honest Asaph, honestly struggling to honestly believe that there is any gain in following God. Granted, as Robin read earlier, we saw affirmation from Asaph at the beginning and the end of Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel. That's Sunday Club lesson number one for any Israelite, and that's how he starts. And then look how he finishes. For me, it is good to be near God. His journey throughout Psalm 73 concludes with a resounding yes. It is good to be a Christian. And yet what is also obvious this morning is that to be a believer in God does not mean that Asaph closes his eyes to the problems and issues that he faces in the world. It didn't mean him closing his eyes back then, nor does it mean that we should do the same today. But rather than running away from God with his doubts, Asaph takes them to God and finds his answers there. And that's what we should do whenever we face doubts, insecurities, questions. Express them honestly before God, who longs to hear from us. Asaph's paradigm is a good one for us to follow. So over the next 25 minutes or so, let's allow Asaph to show us his working. There are three things that we can pull out of Psalm 73 this morning. The first one is Asaph's envious look at injustice in the first 14 verses. Asaph's envious look at injustice. There is a distinct lack of justice that Asaph sees before his eyes. And he tells us in verse 2 that it was so severe that it almost caused him to stumble away from his belief that God is good to Israel. The wicked prosper in verse 3. In the language of the Psalms, the wicked are those that oppose God and oppose his people. 
So if God is good, and if God is for his people, then why would he allow the wicked to prosper? It doesn't make any sense to Asaph. Why wouldn't God stop it from happening? It's a good question. Asaph goes on, verse 4. The arrogant and the wicked don't seem to have any struggles at all. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They look healthy, they look prosperous, and they look attractive. Verse 5. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They have no struggles, and nor are they hiding it. They're proudly making it public in front of God's people. Verse 6. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. The wicked oppose God, and what is the outcome? They're prosperous. They're seemingly trouble-free, visibly impressive, and remorselessly aggressive towards God's people. It's not fair. And not only can Asaph see them, but he can hear them very, very clearly. Verse 8, they scoff and they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Verse 9, their tongue struts throughout the earth as they are belligerent towards God and belligerent towards God's people. And such is often the appearance and the sound of those that stand against God. You don't have to look very far to see that. Wander onto any university campus, any high school, any office block, switch on your televisions, and you'll see that what is true in Asaph's day is certainly true today. Those that oppose God and oppose his people will often look very intimidating and make a lot of noise. Some of them are very successful. Some of them are very, very clever. And it's having disastrous consequences for Asaph. Verse 10, God's people are tempted to turn away from God back to the wicked that oppose him. God's people are starting to believe that actually there's no fault in the wicked. They're the ones doing it right. God's people understandably want to be on the winning team. And God's people ask in verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Does God really know what he's doing? The wicked are being wicked and they're having a great time. Asaph and God's people, by contrast, are trying to do everything they can to show faithfulness, to show loyalty towards God, which is difficult enough at the best of times. And now Asaph has all this to contend with on top. It's not fair. The injustice of it all. So maybe God is not good. Or maybe God is not powerful. Surely he can't be both good and powerful. Surely he can't be worth bothering about if he allows such injustice to happen. But Asaph has an even bigger problem. It's easy to miss when you read the psalm, but it's there, and it's serious. Verse 3. Asaph was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph's attitude betrays a much deeper problem residing in his own heart. The injustice that Asaph sees is real. It's not all in his head. But his greatest source of pain is his envy. Asaph's question is not, why are all the wicked prospering? Asaph's question is, why are all the wicked prospering and not me? And that envy leads to a warped perspective on his circumstances and a very warped perspective of who God is. 
Asaph thinks that he deserves more from God. Verse 13, he says, in, in vain I've kept my heart clean. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. He thinks he's earned God's favor and blessing, and he wants it right there and then in response to the prosperity of the wicked. Something to at least make him equal with them, if not more. But we know that's not how God loves his people. It's not based on doing good stuff to earn his blessing. It's not God's economy. And yet we see Asaph's understanding of reality is twisted as the envy begins to eat away at his heart. The truth is, for Asaph and for us, that the external problem of the injustice towards God's people in the world catches our attention and our eyes are so fixed on that that we are slow or reluctant to look at the internal problem of envy in our own hearts. We see those that reject God prospering. We see God's people suffering. And our envious hearts point the finger at a good God who would allow all these things to happen and we say it's not fair. We deserve more from you, God. But actually the truth is that our deadly problem is envy sneaking around in our hearts that would encourage us to doubt God's goodness because we see those that don't believe in him doing better than we are. And so now Asaph has two problems to handle. Injustice and his own envious sense of entitlement in his heart. And that combination runs the risk of distorting the view of any believer, distorting our view of God. And I feel that frequently in my own heart. Look at everyone in Edinburgh ignoring and rejecting God. And look at how well some of them appear to be doing. I spend all my week trying to encourage students in Edinburgh to talk to their friends about Jesus. Surely I deserve something more than the difficulties that I face, God. Surely. It's not fair. I can see a lot of myself in Asaph. And wonderfully, the solution to both the injustice in the world and Asaph's envy is found in the next three verses. We've seen in uh, Asaph's envious look at injustice, and now we see Asaph's turning point at the sanctuary. Asaph's turning point at the sanctuary. To go from where we are in verse 14 to the end of Asaph's journey, where he reiterates that it is good to be near God, is quite the turnaround. Whatever medicine Asaph took when he was in the sanctuary, frankly, I wouldn't mind taking some myself. Asaph catches himself in verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He knows that to declare these things in the first 14 verses, to be envious of the wicked, to doubt God's goodness, is to turn his back on God and on God's people. He doesn't want to do that, but he confesses in verse 16 that he he can't figure it all out. When he thought to understand this, it seemed to Asaph a wearisome task. And I'm sure by now we're on his side and trying to figure it all out and piece it all together. But we see that by the end of the psalm, He says, it is good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So what happened to Asaph when he went into the sanctuary? Did he he read the Bible? Was it a, a passage that really struck a chord with him? Or did he meet with God's people? Was it a friend that patted him on the back and said, everything's going to be okay? Did he have an intense experience where he felt the warmth of seeing his favorite psalms? Well, had it been any of those, Asaph would have mentioned them. And whilst those are good things, 
they're not the tonic for Asaph at the sanctuary. See, the sanctuary is a, is a meeting point. God cannot be limited to one place. But in the Old Testament, at the center of the community of his people, God crafted a point where he and his people met. And Asaph went into that meeting place. Only the priest was allowed to go into the innermost part of the sanctuary to meet with God, to atone for the sins of God's people at certain times. So holy is God that had Asaph just gone straight in there, he would have died. And so Asaph will have been reminded of that, and he will have smelt the, the blood and the sacrifices that God's people make to atone for the sins that they commit, and much more besides. And the sanctuary stands in the middle of God's people as a beacon displaying God's holiness to his people, saying there is an almighty and perfect God, and no one is to mess with him. The sanctuary screams out loud and clear that God is holy, just, and that wickedness will be dealt with. And at that point in the sanctuary, Asaph remembers who God is. He understands again just how holy God is and how little God tolerates rebellion against him. He will remember how God demonstrates justice as the animals take the sins and the place of God's people. And so what turns Asaph around in Psalm 73 is when he realizes afresh the glorious good news of the holy and perfect God who has brought Asaph into his family. Asaph zooms right out to see his life and his understanding of the situation in the backdrop of his holy God. It's Asaph's turning point. At the sanctuary, the injustice that Asaph perceives is seen in its true eternal time frame and perspective. The envy Asaph feels is stacked up against a mighty and eternal holy God. And so now, in the aftermath of all this, Asaph, verse 17, discerns the end of the wicked. Now he realizes afresh who the wicked have opposed. He understands the final destination of those that oppose a holy God. Utter ruin facing the full weight of God's judgment. Complete separation from God. That's what faces the wicked. And when Asaph goes to the sanctuary and drags his perspective into line with a holy God's perspective, Asaph sees things clearly. Well, what about us? What do we do? We don't have a sanctuary. And that is because we have something better. We do not need a sanctuary because our holy God has fully met with us and fully revealed himself in Jesus. That's the good news of Christmas we've just been celebrating. God with us. That holy God, that same holy God with us. God has been so good to us in providing us with a long-term home. It really is a wonderful blessing. Uh, I've, I've moved equipment and Bibles from office to van to here to van to office. And trust me, I can tell you how much I'm looking forward to having a building. I'm not going to catch Naomi's eye at this point, because she would probably contest that. She would probably tell you that she moved equipment and Bibles from office to van to here to van to office, whilst I stood around doing nothing and talking to people. And there may be a modicum of truth to that. But Chalmers Church Edinburgh, that building, wonderful as it will be, will not be a sanctuary. Our sanctuary is Christ. 
God's meeting point between him and his people, where his holiness is fully displayed, where the ultimate sacrifice is made, where sin is ultimately dealt with, is in Jesus. Out of love for his people, Jesus goes willingly to the cross, takes the measure of God's wrath that we deserve, and in doing so reveals how holy, how powerful, and how just God really is. God meets us in a much better way and displays his holiness much more powerfully in his son than he did at the sanctuary that day with Asaph. And so that medicine that Asaph took is ours to take. It's better. We look at the cross. We see the justice and the holiness that God shows. Sin and wickedness is defeated. It's dealt with eternally. And all Asaph had been looking at until the sanctuary was the there and then, the immediate future, not God's eternal promises. We do it all the time. It's an epidemic for us today. We look at the here and now. Our time frame barely stretches to the end of the week, never mind the rest of our lives, never mind eternity. Anything we have to get, we have to get in the here and now. And so we flinch at the injustice of the world and we envy those that hate God who have lots of money, who are very successful, who are very healthy, Except God doesn't work on that time scale. So let's learn the lesson that Asaph learned. In our moments of doubt, as God's people, let's take them to God. Let's cast our mind to the cross. Let's look at our better sanctuary. Let's look at Jesus. Let's look at his death and let's take into account God's just and eternal settling of the accounts once and for all, which he promises us. Well, we've had Asaph's envious look at injustice, Asaph's turning point at the sanctuary, and now finally Asaph's serious look at eternity. And what happens to Asaph is a complete reassessment. He has his eternity goggles on, and my goodness me, things look totally, totally different. Verse 18, now the wicked are set by God in slippery places. God makes them fall to ruin. Verse 19, they are destroyed in a moment, utterly swept away by terrors. What a contrast to the way that Asaph describes the supposed victorious stance of the wicked in the first 14 verses. Asaph had spotted the prosperity of the wicked, but now in line with God's eternal holiness and his eternal justice, Asaph spots their destruction. Asaph had understood their wickedness, but now in line with God's eternal holiness and justice, he understands how futile, how futile rebellion is against God and understands God's impending judgment on the wicked. It doesn't matter if they appear prosperous, seemingly trouble-free, visibly impressive, remorselessly aggressive towards God's people, however loud and proud the lives are of the forces that oppose God, they are ultimately short-lived and they are in serious, serious danger of God's judgment. And so Asaph's timescale is now right. And as he faces eternity, he starts to see the perilous position of the wicked for what it is. But he now also sees his heart for what it is. Verse 21, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. 
I was like a beast towards you. Asaph's envy made him very much like the wicked, brutish, ignorant towards God. Asaph was starting to doubt that God was good to him, but now in line with God's holiness and justice, he retunes himself into God's promises, which are Asaph's. They belong to Asaph as a part of God's family. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph knows that his heart is no better than the hearts of the wicked. And yet he knows that God, that God holds on to him and will forgive him. It's remarkable grace from a good God. Understanding God's holiness and character has moved Asaph from, I was envious of the wicked, to, whom have I in heaven but you? Understanding God's holiness and character has moved Asaph from, in vain I've kept my heart clean, to, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In eternity, his holy God will provide for Asaph the ultimate meeting of his needs, the ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate justice, the ultimate fulfillment for which he has been looking. And that is enough for Asaph. It's enough for Asaph. He understands the serious eternity of the wicked, and he understands the serious eternity of the believer. And so Asaph signs off Psalm 73, clearly wanting us to see that the position of the arrogant and wicked is not all that enviable. Verse 27, he says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for Asaph, for me, it is good to be near God. And those wonderful words Asaph records for us there are words that we too can take upon our lips this morning. Understanding God's holiness, seen fully in Christ, moves a Christian from, I am envious of the wicked, to, whom have I in heaven but you, God? Understanding God's holiness, seen fully in Christ, moves the Christian from, in vain I have kept my heart clean, to, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See now why it's a great idea to take our doubts straight to God and gaze upon the cross. Uh, I'll often be asked to go and speak to Christian teenagers that are leaving high school to go to university and to give them advice as they move from uh, school to uni or college. And one of the things I say to them is, if you believe in God, you're on the winning side. Stay there. And we will always be tempted to envy. But let's trust God's holiness over our envious perspective. The truth is, like Asaph, we haven't got less than we deserve. We've received so much more than we deserve. We've received God as the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Following him this year ahead is not always going to look fair. It's not going to be easy. But when we reflect on the sheer eternal size and holiness of God, then we should throw off any envy that we have of anybody in this life who does not believe in him. There is no more secure place to stand 
than in the refuge of God. The injustice, the oppression, and the prosperity of the wicked here and now melt into insignificance before an eternal holy God who will deal with rebellion against him and will take his people to be with him forever. Is it easy to be a Christian? Uh, Certainly not. Asaph has told us all about that. Is it good to be a Christian? A resounding yes. Uh, Let me pray for us as we close this morning. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would take our envious hearts that are so tempted to doubt your goodness, so tempted to doubt your love for us, and our prayer is that you would transform them to be more like Christ, who has a faith in you, who followed you obediently. Father, we pray that you would help us to have an eternal perspective You would help us to see that you have forgiven us if we have faith in you. Father, stop us from looking at those that have rejected you enviously. Help us to start looking at them, wanting them to know this goodness for themselves. Wanting them to to come to the point where you are their portion forever. Father, help us to have the good news of the gospel in Psalm 73 on our lips as we leave here today. In Christ's name. Amen.